for reading from John 17, 16 to 23. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe, excuse me, who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be as one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is the very word of God. on ah. that when Ben was trying to get you to respond or react co-creator of passion I appreciated so much that there was just silence because <laughs> one of the things you do not want to do is feed into someone's pride before they begin to preach and so I, I was thanking God that it was just kind of like Bleh. It is a real joy to be here. Back in the uh, 95 through 99, well, really summer of 99, uh, my family and the seven children we had lived in Norman, Oklahoma, so not too far from here. So that was, uh, <laughs> yeah, about that. So it's interesting to be always coming back here. I have the joy of, as Perspectives was being promoted, of being part of those loops for a long time here in Oklahoma. It's one of the few loops that I try to do uh, because of the relationships here that I have, and I would encourage you um, that you wouldn't let petty things get in the way to uh, participate in that class. Also, and I'm glad we had a lot of time between the prayer, Jad, that you brought us into the throne of God. I have never heard a prayer, a pastoral prayer like that, ever. I have been in hundreds and hundreds of churches. And I'm always grieved that if there is a pastoral prayer, it's very ethno and egocentric. And to have one of your elders take you to the throne of grace and articulate from his heart the prayer for the nations. And I hope that is done on a regular basis here and is not an anomaly based on a certain Sunday that, it called, that is called Global Focus. Because the church and everyone who claims the name of Jesus Christ is to be strategically, intentionally engaged in his mission both locally to the ends of the earth simultaneously every moment and day 
of their lives. Also, as I was preparing, I had a conversation with Ben earlier in the week, and normally I go to churches and they're clueless. They don't have a good biblical foundation of missions. Basically, they have a couple of uh, pet verses that they go after, you know, Mark 16, 15, or Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And those are a few. There's some interesting verses they pick in the Old Testament. Unfortunately, one that claims, that really proclaims the judgment of the nations, but many churches will use it as a mission theme, but I won't go there and venture there. It always concerns me. But Ben says, you know, they have a good foundation. And so it's like, huh, what do I do? I don't want to be redundant. And so as God began to lay on my heart, I know whenever there's a special Sunday set aside for missions, a lot of times throughout history, that's where people stay away from church. Either sermons on missions or Sundays on stewardship. Normally don't get the crowds because of all the conviction someone might feel or the assumption that, oh, I'm not called to that, so I don't really need to be a part of that. And so I thought I would try to get as practical as possible. And then about 1.15 last night, I was awakened abruptly, and God began to lead me in how I should introduce the concept. But my fear in what he was prompting in my heart was that my introduction might create a significant visceral response. Now, to help you with that definition, a visceral response is one of emotion that can cloud the information, the cognitive grasp of something, and so we can get so emotional, we won't listen to anything else. So, as I begin to pray, I would just caution you, because I might be doing a sermon that you'd be going, how could this be spoken of in the context of a church? So, Father, as we gaze into your word as we have the privilege of hearing from you. Help us to understand you didn't give us your word so that we could take it under advisement. And then we consider what we're going to yield to and what we're not going to yield to. Forgive us every time we do that. And we all have done that. But Father, May our hearts and minds be open to hear from our King, our Lord, our God, that you have liberated us from the slavery of living for self, and you have not just saved us, but you have called us to be your disciple, disciple makers sent from Oklahoma City to the ends of the earth. Father, we're listening, and may we hear from you. I pray things, these things in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So this past June, I was at Lackland Air Force Base. I was watching the graduation ceremony of over 600-plus airmen. And as it's coming to the close they recite what's known as the Airman's Creed. And so you have 600 plus 
men and women, in a rousing voice that is, it was, it was so, I mean, the commitment they were making in that time, and it, this is what they said. I am an American airman. I'm a warrior. I have answered my nation's call. I'm an American airman. My mission is to fly, fight, and win. I'm faithful to a proud heritage, a tradition of honor, and a legacy of valor. I am an American airman, guardian of freedom and justice, my nation's sword and shield, its century avenger, a defender of my country with my life. I am an American airman, wingman, leader, warrior. I will never leave an airman behind. I will never falter. I will not fail. grandson was a loser. But immediately when I heard this, I'm thinking what I'm listening to is biblical. Now you might be going, whoa, <laughs> come on now. Are you bringing nationalism into this? No. But the concepts and principles are biblical. And so a few days later, I wrote a Disciple Maker's Creed, and it goes like this. I am a disciple of Christ. I am his witness, martis, in parentheses, soldier, and bondservant. Now, you might go, soldier, what are you talking about, Jeff? I have biblical references for everyone. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, suffer hardship as a good soldier of Christ with me. For every soldier does not entangle himself with the affairs of this life, so he might present himself acceptable to the one who has enlisted him. Please understand, when you came to salvation in Jesus Christ, you were enlisted into his service. I am a disciple of Christ. My mission is to make disciples of all nations in order to advance his kingdom to the ends of the earth. I am faithful to those witnesses who have gone before me, a tradition of faithfulness, a legacy of valor, for they love not their lives even unto death. I am a disciple of Christ, defender of the faith, wielding well the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. I will pick up my cross and follow him, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I am a disciple of Christ, friend of God, servant of his church, disciple maker of the nations. I will never deny Christ. I will confess Christ boldly. I will walk in the power of the Spirit. His kingdom is everlasting. I am a disciple of Christ. Hallelujah. That's what I heard as I was listening to that Airman's Creed. But now let's take it a little further. My grandson just didn't do the six weeks of basic. 
because he was a part of two flights that wanted to go into special forces. He wanted to be a PJ. There were two flights within those 600-plus American airmen that were going through basics, and 174 of those wanted to go on special services. On the weekend, after the weekend of the graduation, on that Monday when they called, when they were called to come that morning at 6 a.m., 50 of those men determined, I do not want to go into special services. For some reason, the last, the first six weeks were hard. They weren't looking forward to another 10 weeks. Of those 100, well, about 40 plus, so about 130 plus, then went into seven weeks of what was called SWIC. After SWIC, they're now down to 24. Men that chose to quit. Then they go into this very benign, con, you know, it's called selection, assessment, and selection. I mean, that sounds so benign. It must be really easy, right? After those three weeks, there's now four. Of those two, my grandson included, was chosen to be a PJ in training. Now, this takes it to a whole nother level. PJs, are, it stands for para-jumpers. They're para-rescuers. They're trained to do one thing, and that is to save life. Here is their motto. These things we do that others may live. It is rare to find that kind of commitment in the church today. And I think it grieves the heart of God, and it should grieve us. I think it's our greatest sin. We have not listened to the very direct, concise statements of Christ that he makes through the scriptures. In fact, I would argue that we will take his strong, concise, clear statements and try to manipulate them so they fit within the agenda that we have for our lives. Here's just a few examples, like in Luke 14, he's got a crowd following him, and he turns to the crowd, and he says in verse 26, unless you hate your mother, your father and your mother, your sister and your brother, your wife and your children, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. So very clearly what he's saying is, there is no competition in your love for me and me alone. The Old Testament knew it as, you should love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul. It's interesting how we'll just take that and just minimize it, that it just means love less. No, it means much more than that. I do not love my wife because she's number two. I love my wife because I love God and God alone, and it is through God, by faith, that I have the opportunity of loving my wife. There's no competition there. 
Then in 27, he says, if you don't pick up your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But please understand, you're hearing disciple, and you're going, okay, you might have the opinion that disciple is another level of Christian. No. 269 times the Greek word mathetes, normally translated disciple, is used in the New Testament. From a contemporary perspective, we would put cannot be a Christian. But scripturally, Christian was more of a derogatory term, so it wasn't a term that the church embraced for itself. They were disciples of Christ. And then when we get down to verse 33, it's almost like Christ is saying, you know, it's quite possible you haven't captured everything I said. And so he summarizes it. Unless you renounce everything, you cannot be my disciple. Think of all the games we play with those statements. But these are the words of our Lord, our King, our Savior. Do we minimize those? Or think of the mandates that he gives us. The mandate that is sometimes called the mission of the kingdom in Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in all the earth as a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. It is in reference to a question the disciples are asking him in verse 3 of chapter 24. When they ask him the question, after they've been in the temple and after Jesus has kind of ruined the conversation, when they're pointing the beauty of the temple, and he goes, oh, by the way, there's not going to be one stone left upon another. So they walk down to the Valley of Kindred, up to the Mount of Olives, and they finally ask him the question, when are you going to return and when... Is the, when will these things happen? And he goes into a long litany of things, but he doesn't answer the question until verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom should be proclaimed in all the earth. And this church, I'm sure, knows very well that according to Joshua Project, there's still 7,000 unreached people groups in the world today. There's still about 2 billion people in the world today who have never even heard the name of Jesus. So how in the world can they be saved? There's over 3 billion that are incorporated in about 40% of the world's population that are among the unreached. And so I know one simple fact. Jesus is not back yet. We're not finished yet. So stay focused. But think about it. I love the young families in the room, having 20 grandkids, the oldest being 24 and the youngest being about, I think it'll be two in May, so I have, I got, I'm not going to count the months. I love the fact that the children here, but I don't have to tell you how they distract you from so many things that you'd love to do, how they how you forget the things that are important because of the tyranny of the urgent at the moment and how that can capture our hearts and minds and create such fatigue that we almost give up on things. We must, in relationship with Christ, determine how can we stay focused in what you've called us to do and how do we develop in our children those who will fall in love with Christ and become disciple-makers of the nations.
Some of you might be close to my age. And so we're in the last season of life. We're told in the context of our culture, now's the time to retire. That is not biblical. We are to be faithful as disciple makers of the nations until we meet him face to face. And everything in between, whether it's the teenagers in the room, young men and women, singles, whatever. These mandates that Christ has given the church are mandates he has given to us, whether it's this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in all the earth, or whether it's Matthew 28 and verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, whether it's Mark 15, 16, go into all the earth and preach the gospel to all creation, or Luke 24, 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins shall be proclaimed in my name to all nations, whether it's John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, so I send you, or whether it's Acts 1, 8, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all the Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And please, one little caveat here. Jerusalem has nothing to do with home. If it was going to relate to home, then Jesus would have said, go back to your villages in Galilee and start spreading the gospel. Jerusalem was about strategy because after 10 days of waiting from power on high, God is bringing Jews from the nations to gather together for the Feast of Pentecost so that when the church is birthed, it's birthed in a global context. As they begin to speak the language of the nations, begin to speak the gospel the language of the nations, and 3,000 come to faith in Jesus Christ. Even the church itself, missions is not something it does, it's who she is. Because she was birthed in that global context. And so those are the mandates. But we also have the parables that Jesus clearly communicates so much truth. And I only have time to give you a couple of handfuls of concepts here. The idea of in Matthew 13, the seven parables of the kingdom, as Jesus is describing for his disciples the mystery, the secrets of the kingdom. Two of those parables are very simple. The parable of the pearl of great price and the parable of the hidden treasure. The simple meaning of those is this. Whatever it costs you to enter the kingdom, it's worth it. But we, unfortunately, mistake free grace as something that doesn't cost us anything. According to Christ, the receiving of God's grace cost us our lives. For he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for his sake who died and was raised from the dead. And what is amazing to me is we've got these very direct statements of Christ, and this is just a handful. 
I mean, I thought, I asked the question, do they understand the narrative of Scripture, the grand narrative, the meta-narrative of God, the story of God? Do they understand the plot of Scripture, the redemption of the nations, and the reestablishment of God's kingdom on earth? Does the church understand that? And the answer is always yes, yes, yes. But how many times do we continue to forget to where it doesn't set the focus of every day within our lives. That's what we have to come. We have to take the knowledge that has been developed in the context of this church and in other ways you have discovered these concepts, but you have to understand how do you become a disciple maker of the nations? If Christ has called us to make disciples of all nations, then the church's responsibility is to make disciple makers of the nations. And we don't wait around for some 17-year-old to come forward in a service and go, I sense a call to go to the nations. No, we don't wait for that. Once you name a claim in the name of <laughs> Once you begin the claim, the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, the track that you're on is to become a disciple maker of the nations, not determined by your geographical location. So if you never leave Oklahoma City, you've been about not just making disciples, that's a Western caricature of biblical disciple making. You're making disciple makers of the nations. Because the Greek syntax demands that you include every word. Because the verb there is discipling, matheteo. And it's a transitive verb. Sorry for the... It means that it must connect with a direct object. It must correct with the object. You can't separate it. But what is interesting to me in most churches throughout the world... They think the, the call of Christ is to make disciples. Then in the mission world, they think the focus of Christ is all nations. And they forget half. They both forget half of the, of the phrase. It's about making disciples of all nations. So you're wondering, is he ever going to get to the text? Yes. So turn to John 17. And of course, I see... I only have about six minutes to go. But unfortunately, your pastor said he normally goes five to ten minutes longer. That's something you never tell a guest speaker because a guest speaker can always take more time because they're leaving. But here's the question I want to answer. What do you do with all this information? How do you become a disciple maker of the nations? Now, I don't have time. I've identified 16 core competencies that the church should be very intentional in developing whether you're 11 years old or whether you're 80 years old. Those core competencies should be developed in your life and walk with Christ. But I think it's essential to listen to how Christ sets the foundation of how do we become what he has called us to do. So we looked at what's known as the high priestly prayer. Sinclair Ferguson declares that the reason why it's called the high priestly prayer, because you'll never see priest in this John 17 passage. The whole passage is a prayer, all 26 verses. 
In verse 1, it says, Christ, after he'd finished these sayings, he lifted his eyes to the heavens and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son that the Son might glorify you. And it goes into this prayer. And so there's three sections to the prayer, the first of the first five verses. And the sections relate to the Day of Atonement when one of the priests, the high priest, would go into the Holy of Holies, the very personal place where God is experienced. The Shekinah glory of God resides on that. The Shekinah glory of God is the intimate presence of God among his people. And so first, the priest would pray for himself, and Christ is praying for himself in those first five verses. Starting at verse 6 through 19, he would then pray for the other priests that are not going into the Holy of Holies, and then he would pray for the people of Israel. Jesus does something very similar. He prays for himself, he prays for his followers, the 11 that are remaining, because Jesus has already gone off to betray him. And then starting in verse 20, he prays for us. Now let me, let me try to make this clear. Over 2,000 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed for you. I ask that they start in verse 16, so that would be towards the end of how Jesus is praying for those 11. And in the context of that prayer, he comes out of verse 15, which was not read. He says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And then he says in verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I send them in the world. Let me just pause there for a moment and just tease you, because I don't have time to go in depth. That is the introduction to the commissioning statement found in John's gospel, which is on Sunday evening, the night of his resurrection. Are you with me? The night of his resurrection, he's behind locked doors. He appears to disciples, and he says, Peace be with you, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Now, most people take that statement, that commissioning statement, along with the other four commissioning statements that I would argue, one of the chapters you were talking about in the introduction, I'm arguing that the Great Commission is not one single commissioning statement, it is the collective whole of five statements that Jesus speaks between his resurrection and his ascension that I summarized for you earlier. Most believe this is a task statement along with the other tasks they make disciples of all nations, Proclaim the gospel to all creation. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name on all nations. Those are all tasks, right? But is it possible this is not a task statement? Yes, task is referenced, but is it possible that this is more on how the Father sent the Son, not focused on what the Father sent the Son to do? So I think it would be a great idea for all of us to pause and go, how did the Father send the Son? Because that becomes the foundation of how we accomplish his mission. Are you with me? So this section of scripture of Jesus praying for us is so essential for us to not only understand but to fully embrace and to fully live 
out. Because you will be swimming upstream trying to reach your neighborhood and the greater Oklahoma City area for Christ if you don't understand these concepts. And that would go to the ends of the earth. So I'm not just creating a false dichotomy. There is no dichotomy between our local ministry and our global mission to the ends of the earth. We are to be faithful in both simultaneously. And so I would challenge you to read through the Gospel of John and see the portrait that John paints of who, how Jesus accomplished the Father's will. You'll hear statements like this, like in John 5. I do nothing on my own initiative. I only do what I hear the Father telling me to do. I say nothing on my own initiative. I only do what I hear the Father saying to me. I don't judge on my own initiative. I only judge as the Father judges. Basically, the portrait of Jesus that you have, 40 separate illustrations in the Gospel of John, is Jesus, who was the Word of God made flesh, who dwelt among us, but does not live like he's God. He lives in submissive intimacy to the Father's will and every movement of life. So how do we accomplish his mission? To live in submissive intimacy to the Father's will that has been given to us by the apostles. Take that and listen to this section of his prayer. Verse 20, notice. I not only pray for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their words. That's why we should never, ever strip away all the concepts of the gospel. I love the fact that one of the key elements of the disciple ministry in this church is the gospel first and foremost. Most of us have never really even though we've read it before, haven't made the connection that if we understand the gospel out of the concept of God's global purpose, we don't understand the biblical gospel. More than likely, you came to faith in Jesus Christ and they never brought up the mission of Christ when they were sharing the gospel to you. But listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3.8. God foreseen that the scriptures, through the scriptures, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, spoke the gospel beforehand to Abraham when he said, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The gospel we are to take to Oklahoma City and to the nations is a gospel that was first declared in the redemptive statement of Genesis 5, 15, and I will bring enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed, and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. But it is then more clearly articulated in the purpose clause of the Abrahamic covenant, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
And so we must understand the gospel from that context. I need to move on. <laughs> Minus three. All right. Now listen very carefully to what Jesus is praying in 21, because there's two clauses that move towards a purpose clause. That they, now this is not rhetorical, who are the they? And who are the disciples? Thank you. He's praying for us, right? If we're followers of Christ, that they, and who's the they? They that believed in him through the words of his disciples, okay? That they would be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Think about what he's just prayed. He is praying that his church would be an authentic manifestation of the unity of the Trinity. How are we doing? I remember when God opened my eyes to this about seven years ago. I'd read that portion of scripture and it just hit me so hard. I wanted to fall on my face because I realized I was fighting against what Christ had prayed for. But then we also need to be careful. He's not praying for unity for unity's sake. That mistake has been made throughout the ages. That unity revolves around the biblical gospel. Who believe in me through the words of the apostles. The New Testament. If there's compromise from the gospel, if there's compromise from the New Testament, then there can be no unity. Our unity is based on that. So he wants us, the church, to be a living manifestation to the neighborhood. This local manifestation of the body of Christ exists to be a living manifestation of the intimacy of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then, a very short phrase, that they, and who's the they? Okay, that was really weak. I used to be a college professor, so I would demand more response. <coughs> Excuse me, who's the they? Okay, that they would be in us. Now what's the invitation here? That we get to experience the intimate relationship with the Father and the Son together. And what is the outcome of that? What is the purpose of that? Why is he praying that? So that the world may believe that you sent me. The mission of Christ, right? Have you wondered why so many people reject the gospel of Christ? Could it be that we do not manifest that gospel in the way we live together? One of the things I love in the brief knowledge I have about this church is you have missional families. The church is not defined by what happened, just happens here on a Sunday morning. This church is defined that I would steal from the pietists of the 17th century churches within the church. Because you cannot experience all that this church is to be in a large group like this. How do you love one another 
as deeply as Christ is calling us to? How do you admonish one another? How do you confess your faults to one another if it's in the context of this broader group when you pare it down to six missional family groups? That's where this really takes off. And it's those missional family groups are to be the manifestation of the intimacy of the Trinity, not only here in Oklahoma City, but you just sent out another couple. They are now a living manifestation of the unity that Christ has called this to two and the intimacy that he's called them into. That's one of the reasons I'm not a fan about just sending a couple of people. I like sending teams so that unity can be manifested within those cross-cultural concepts. Let me move on. The glory that you've given me, I've given to you. <laughs> so now we have, to, we have to deal with something. What glory is he talking about? Is he glo the glory of the cross, which is in verse 4? I have accomplished the work that you gave me, or I have glorified you, having accomplished the works you've given me. That's the glory of the cross. But verse 5 of John 17 is, now glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So the question is, is he giving us the glory of the pre-incarnated Christ or the glory of the word made flesh and the glory of the cross? I have a simple answer. There's no way I'm going to love a lot of people in the church if I don't die to self. And so I believe it's the glory of the cross because notice why he's praying. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them. He says that they would be one as we are one. I am in you. You are them. That they would be perfectly one. I mean, I don't, I, I, I just read the word from a very, my weirdness kind of plays out here. I go, that's a little idealistic, Jesus. I mean, that they would be perfectly one so the world may know that you sent me. Now, this is the one that just blows my socks off. I do have socks on here. And that you would love them as you love me. Now, that, see, I've read John Piper. God loves himself more than he ever will love us, right? So how can Jesus be praying that he would love us in the same way he loves the Son? And I'm slow. And I just figured this out a couple of months ago. It's really answered as you read on. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory, that's the glory of verse 5, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these that you have sent me, and these that... And these know that you sent me. I may know to them your name. That's going back to those 11 in the room. But also through their words, we've come to know Christ. That is our greatest privilege of salvation, is the intimate knowledge of this triune God. And that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I am them. The reason why the Father can love us in the same way he loves the Son is because of our union in Christ. So the love that he loves the Son 
now applies to us because we are in Christ Jesus. That's where we must begin. We must understand the theological and practical concepts that flow out of our union with Christ. What did Paul mean when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me and delivered himself up for me. We can't just know those cognitively. We need to understand how do we walk in that truth, not in a solo effort, but in community. I know it's a little more difficult to join this church because they want you to join the church through the smaller family units. And that might rub you the wrong way. I believe that's biblical. Not because Ben told me to say that. I have been pushing churches to do that for decades so that there would be a commitment because they've already developed the relationships and they're being brought to the church to become part of the church. My prayer is this, is that as you take communion, you would ask the Father to reveal what is hindering you in full engagement? What is keeping you, not just, you might think, to his mission. No, no, don't, don't equate it just to that. What is hindering you in full engagement in the unity of this body of Christ? In your pursuit of God together. Not just to know him, but to participate in his mission. And allow the Holy Spirit to bring whatever conviction he desires to bring within your heart. And before you take the bread and wine, you would confess and repent. So you might take it in a way that honors him and does not bring judgment upon yourself. Father, I thank you for these men and women in the church that they're a part of. Uh, it has been the greatest blessing just to sit under a prayer. Oh, that, Father, the churches throughout this country would understand that that should be not an anomaly, but the standard. Not only in a corporate prayer, but in our individual prayers. So, Father, continue to teach us, continue to bless this church, and continue to move in the hearts of, its, of those that are here and those that are not to participate faithfully in your mission from here to the ends of the earth. For we pray these things in your glorious name. Amen.